Well, it's really great to be here. I uh, drove over from Spokane today and, um, and to have my two youngest kids with us uh, and my wife in the middle there, and uh, Aaron, Cedric, Malachi. And we're excited to be here with you, um, not just because of the lake, although that is part of it. Uh, we're excited for a lot of reasons, but I, I'm really excited here to talk about what what it means to be hu a human being and how it is that Jesus uh, redefines or defines truly and most fundamentally what it is to be human. And we're going to be looking at Revelation uh, 5 tonight, verses 9 and 10. And it's a song, so it's appropriate that we uh, hear about it right after we just sang a song, because this is the 24 uh, elders and the, 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 the beasts and the 24 elders singing a new song together to the lamb who uh, appears before them as a lion. They hear, they hear the lion speak and they turn around and they see that the lion is also a lamb. And it says, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. Now I want to start off with a, a story. One of your own poets has told this story before. It starts with a farm girl. And she's the most beautiful farm girl in the land, and there's a farm boy that works for her farm on the land, and day in and day out, he comes in and he serves this farm girl, and she orders him around as she's young, but as she grows up, every time he gets a command from her to do something, he responds as you wish. And she slowly comes to realize that every time she gives him something to do and he responds, as you wish, what he's really saying is, I love you. Now what surprises her in this realization is that she loves him back. Now, he's just a farmhand. And the difficult part about being a farmhand is you get paid pittance. He doesn't have enough to marry this woman, so he says, I'm going to go find my fortune. They stand in front of the farm, and he says, I will be back for you. And she says, what if something goes wrong? And he says, it's true love. Of course, I will make it back. And so he leaves to go off and make his fortune. Unfortunately, he's attacked by the Dread Pirate Roberts. And... No one survives the Dread Pirate Roberts. And so the news comes back that he has been killed and she goes into deep mourning. Now the thing about a beautiful woman is the more she cries, the more beautiful she becomes. And the prince heard about this beautiful farm girl and says, I'm going to marry her. And so he sends off someone to get her, brings her to him, and says, you will be my bride. Now, the prince knows that her true love was killed by the Dread Pirate Roberts. And she is confident that he is coming back. But he's the prince. What can you do when Prince Inslee tells you what you have to do? 
You have to do it. And so um, she, the, they begin preparing for the wedding. Uh, they be, and, and as they prepare for the wedding, one of the things um, that that, that uh, suddenly happens as she is off riding her horse as she likes to do because she's a princess now is she's kidnapped. Right? She's kidnapped and she's thrown on a boat and she is taken uh, to the land across the sea. She barely escapes the shrieking eels which always get louder when they're preparing to feed on human flesh. Uh, and she climbs the cliffs of insanity with the help of a giant. And once she makes it to the top, uh, the, the man that has kidnapped her looks back and he says, we're being followed. And this man continues to follow us. And now he's climbing the cliffs of insanity. It's inconceivable. <laughs> and so uh, he leaves his best swordsman, the, 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 the man who everybody knows to be the best swordsman in the land, to defend uh, the cliffs of insanity. Right? And, and this man, as he climbs up, he, he's wearing a mask because they're terribly comfortable. Everybody will be wearing them <laughs> soon. And he, he uh, makes it to the top of the cliff and he begins a sword fight with the greatest swordsman in the land. Right, and, and as they fight, it becomes clear that this man in the mask is a much better swordsman. Now what this man doesn't know is that the greatest swordsman in the world is fighting him left-handed. So he switches to his right hand and things begin to move back the other direction. But of course, the man in the mask has also been fighting left-handed because it wouldn't be satisfying to kill your enemy too quickly. We all have been in that situation. <laughs> Think that was an unsatisfying killing of my enemy. It should have made it last longer. But after he bests him, he takes off after the princess who still is uh, being, who's still being dragged ac across the land. And uh, the, the man who's kidnapped her looks at his giant and he says, take care of him. This has gone on too far. Right? He, he, just take, he says, well, I, I don't know how to do that. I only fight mobs. And he says, pick up a rock, stand behind that rock when he comes around the corner and his head is in view, hit it with the rock. The giant says, obviously, that's how giants take care of people. But when he comes around the corner, he misses. Now, of course, he's the greatest giant in the land. And much like the greatest swordsman, he doesn't want to kill his enemy too quickly. That's unsatisfying. And so he says, look, let's just fight man to man. I put down my rock. You put down your sword. We kill each other like civilized gentlemen. <laughs> but the giant is only used to fighting mobs. And so when he fights just a single man, he's not prepared with the moves that you need. He, it's, he's, it's been a while since he was in the WWF, and last time he was there, he was lifted up on high by Hulk Hogan and smashed. Nobody saw that coming. <laughs> so the man in the mask overcomes him, holds, gives him a, a choke hold. He's been practicing his cage moves. Choke hold, puts sleeper hold, puts him out, taps him on the side of the head, sleep well, dream of large women. And he goes on to fight this man who has been planning the kidnapping of the princess. 
obviously now the most intelligent man that you have ever met. I mean, he's a Sicilian. And they sit down and they begin a battle of wits. And everybody knows that outside of starting a land war in Asia, the second most important thing to know is never get into a battle of wits with a Sicilian when death is on the line. And then he passes out because this man has just bested him in a battle of wits. And so now the man in the mask has the kidnapped princess. And he's taking her away. They're beginning to be um, tracked now by Prince Humperdinck, who she was supposed to marry, and never trust a man named Humperdinck. I mean, that's just it's the third rule after don't start a land war in Asia and don't get into a battle of wits with a Sicilian when death is on the line. Never trust a man named Humperdinck. Now he is there on their tail, and they're at the top of a cliff, and the man in the mask says, well, I hear you're marrying the prince. And she says, I am, but only until my true love comes to get me. She says, your true love? And she says, I recognize you. A man of such cruelty, you must be the dread pirate Roberts, the man that killed my farm boy. He was precious, he was perfect. And he says, I remember your farm boy. I remember him because he begged me, please, please, I've got a true love at home. I need to get home to her. Now it was the sincerity of his pleas that caught the Dread Pirate Robert's attention. And he remembers the description of the beautiful and faithful farm girl back home. And he says, I assume it would be you, except for I hear you're engaged to the princess, or to the prince. This wasn't San Francisco. Engaged to the prince. And she says, you mock me once. Never do it again. I died the day he died. Now, Prince Humperdinck comes over the top of the mountain. And she says, and you can die too for all I care. And he pushes, she pushes the masked man down the hill. And he falls, ooh, ah, ooh, ah. And shouts out, as you wish. Of course, she says, oh, my dear sweet Wesley, what have I done? She throws herself down the cliff, which makes perfect sense. I don't know why. <laughs> they get to the bottom of the cliff, and suddenly his mask has fallen off as he falls down the cliff, and she has realized, as he shouted, as you wish, that this is her farm boy, Wesley. And he gets to the bottom, and he, of course, is concerned and says, are you okay? She says, okay, I can fly if you like. And then they head off into the fire swamp at that point. So I, obviously, so I just made this story up off the top of my head right now. I, um, no, this is, the story, <laughs> this is the story of the movie The Princess Bride. And if your parents haven't yet shown you The Princess Bride, then you have all of my permission that you need to shame them the entire weekend for their failure as parents. One of the greatest movies ever made, William Goldman, my favorite screenwriter. He, and, but what makes this moment so wonderful in the, in the movie is when he is falling down, or is, there's two things. First, when she's standing there, and he looks at her, and he says, faithful. He went on and on about how you were faithful. And she says, and she turns to him and says, you have no idea. Right. He 
as the, ma the man that loved her had come to a particular conclusion about what was going on. He was interpreting everything, uh, everything in his life, everything that he had been doing, all of the sacrifices that he had been making in terms of a new fact that he had just learned. The woman he loved had turned on him and gotten engaged to someone else when he had promised her that he would be back. And that fact had turned him into a deep cynic. That fact had turned him into someone who had come to take revenge. And she was interpreting everything around the fact that her love had died, had been murdered by the Dread Pirate Roberts. And those facts became the things that gave everything else that they believed their context. Those facts became the, the story that framed everything else that was going on in their lives. Right? And, and um, what I want to talk to you about is something in screenwriting or in storytelling that's called a frame narrative. What I do for work is I write screenplays. Right? I, I'm, a, I'm a screenwriter by trade. And one of the things that uh, we use when we're telling a story is called a frame narrative. And it's the story around the story that gives the inside story its meaning. Because if I were to ask you, what is it that The Princess Bride is about, you would say it's a beautiful, beautiful love story about a, uh, a, a man hunting down his true love and rescuing her from an evil prince. And you'd be dead wrong. Because it's the story of a grandfather giving his grandson the vocabulary he needs to understand how much he loves him. Because if you remember, the story opens with a grandfather coming into his grandson and opening a book and saying, let me read this to you. And, he says, and, he, and as he reads it, he says, oh, that's a great opening, right? And his grandson, at the beginning, is like, yeah, whatever, Grandpa. I want to get back to my Nintendo. Now, a Nintendo, kids, is an old... <laughs> no, just, just, <laughs> He's playing MLB Nintendo Baseball. Great game. <laughs> Um, now, <laughs> when, but, but it, he is, the frame narrative of the Princess Bride is the story of the grandfather. And he, it, it pops in every once in a while and he says, are you too nervous? Is it getting too scary? This is, oh, skip the kissing scenes, Grandpa. I haven't even entered puberty yet. Right? And then by the end of the book, obviously, he has because he's like, oh, <laughs> kissing scenes don't bother me anymore. Kids, puberty. No, just joking. <laughs> so... The frame narrative is the story around the story that ends up informing everything inside the story and giving it the, the meaning and the, uh, the emotional depth that it needs. Now, God has given history a frame narrative. Everybody has a frame narrative. And the frame narrative that you go all the way back to the beginning with in your life is, and in a society, in a culture, is, is called its myth, its creation myth. Right? And, and every society has one. Where is it that we came from? And that story ends up framing everything that we, in, in, in terms of how we interpret our life day in and day out. Where do I come from? Where did this whole story start? Right now, our culture's um, frame narrative story, its mythos, its, its mythos goes back to evolution. Evolution is the, the, um, the, the, the frame narrative, the beginning of the frame narrative for our culture's major story. And 
if you think about it, just for a second, you know, evolution is the story, uh, at least in, the, in its Darwinian version, is the story of competition and, uh, for survival. And whoever is the fittest, whoever is the strongest, is the one that survives. Right? It's, it's as if the story of Cain and Abel was taken and pushed all the way back into history. Right? If Cain and Abel were the first story in the Bible, the way that Romulus and Remus is the first story in the history of Rome, then what that tells us is this place, this story, this, this life that I'm living, it's framed by rivalry, by hatred, by murder. It's framed by a, a lack of resources that we have to fight for. And sometimes we have to kill for. But, but God doesn't give us that frame narrative. He doesn't give the world that frame narrative. That's the frame narrative we have turned around and given it, to, given it ourselves right after the fall. Instead, the frame narrative that God gives us, where the story really begins, is with God creating. Over the course of six days, he sings six verses of a song, recites six verses of a poem, and each verse brings into being a new aspect of creation. And on the sixth day, he, he sings into being us. Right? He sings Adam into being. And he's like, not done yet. Right? And then he pulls a rib out of Adam's side and, and makes Eve out of it, wakes Adam back up. And then he says, now I'm done. Adam wakes up, looks at Eve, and says, Whoa, man. And then God says over Adam and Eve, This is very good. Go take dominion. Go multiply. They're like, How do we do that? You'll figure it out. Right? Go fill this place up with more people like you. Because I like th that kind of creature. The kind of creature you are, I like them. Go make more of them and fill this place with it. Turn this whole place into a garden. And he takes Adam aside. He says, here's what a garden is. Right? He takes him to the Garden of Eden and there's nothing there yet. He makes all of the plants grow up. So see how it works? You're going to have to do some science. You're going to have to figure some things out. You're going to have to learn to track the sun, the moon, and the stars. But you'll figure it out. We're going to garden this whole place. That's where it all begins. No, there's no fear. There's no rivalry. It, there's no shame. God begins the story with creation and the declaration that, it, that it's good as he declares it over the king and queen of this new creation that he's made. The priests of creation. And he says, let's go transform this place. Now, of course, we did then, at that point, grasp after a different God. Grasp after a different God than the one that God gave us. We handed over our authority because a serpent came slinking into the garden with uh, lies on his tongue. And we handed our, over our authority to him. But then God kept insisting on pushing us back into gardens. Pushing us back into our priesthood. Pushing us back into dominion. We fill the whole place up with sin. 
So God fills it all up with water, cleanses it, and starts over again. Puts Noah back in a garden. We mess it up again. God raises up a people. And we're, he gives us Abraham, he gives us Isaac, he gives us Jacob, he gives us Joseph to lead us. And we're like, we're done with this. So we throw him down a well, we sell him into slavery. Like, let's get rid of the one that God leads us. But Joseph is sent down to Egypt where he's given management over a garden. And God draws all of the people back into the land of Goshen. God is insistent on he keeps pushing us back into gardens, pushing us back into our dominion, pushing us back to be kings and queens and priests again. Now, if the frame narrative that we start with is Cain and Abel, then what we see over and over is those, that, that the central plot points are those points of rivalry where we hurt each other and kill each other. But when we start the story with God's creation and God's establishing us in the garden as kings and queens and priests, we can see that that becomes the narrative of the whole story. God keeps insistent, insistently pushing us back into our dominion. Now, we could go through the whole story of the Old Testament, um, but spoilers, eventually Jesus comes along. If you're only in chapter two, I'm sorry. You should have kept up. Um, you can only plug your ears so long and not get spoilers. But Jesus comes along, and in classic Jesus fashion... Not only does he come along to rescue us, he actually comes along and reframes even the frame narrative. In Revelation 13, starting at verse 7, it says, It was given unto him to make war with the saints, talking about the beast, and to overcome them, and power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. The Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. So when Jesus comes along, we're going to look... Uh, we're going to look at Revelation 5 in more detail. When Jesus comes along and they begin singing a new song to him about how he was, uh, he was uh, uh, the lamb who was slain, who redeemed us to God by his blood. That event in history of Jesus' death on the cross is so significant an event that even though it happens in the middle of history, it becomes the frame of the narrative of all of history. He is the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. So when we finally get to Revelation 5, where we started, I know it took a while. Long introductions, welcome to the way I talk. We can see that the song of the four living creatures and the 24 elders to the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is the lamb who was slain, is actually a summary of the frame narrative of history. And they sang a new song again, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. You have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. 
Jesus was slain to redeem us to God by his blood. Because God is so insistent on pushing us back to who he created us to be that he sent his son to die for us. He sent his son to die on the cross for us. Because that frame narrative doesn't just frame uh, what it is that we think, but that's the frame narrative about what God is up to. Now all of the descendants of Adam are fair game because of Jesus' death on the cross. Every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation is fair game for a return to, king, to, to kingship and priesthood. Because the curse of Adam that is, was on the human race that led to the Cain and Abel world, that led to the rivalry, that led to the murder, all of it has been undone. Because God is insistent that we were made for kingship and priesthood. Jesus, with his death on the cross, returns us to our original intention. And every person you meet is now fair game. And we're going to talk a little bit about how this affects evangelism tomorrow. But this is what people are for. This is what people are. They're descendants of Adam and Eve. They're the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. They're heirs to the royal family of Adam. And they continue to carry the marks of his priesthood. Now sin comes in and it, it warps the use of our priesthood. But you can't escape the fact that we are descendants of the first high priest. Or you can sell the use of your priesthood to other gods like Balaam and his talking ass, but you can't quit your nature. But remember what kind of story this is. God, God, didn't, God didn't respond to our petty Cain and Abel rivalries by joining that story, by stepping in and becoming one of the rivals. He's a garden-giving God. He's the triune God who has been living for eternity in, in a self-giving community of love long before he created any of this. So the Garden of Eden was just a reflection, an invitation to join what he had always had. And when we tried to say, no thanks, we'd rather have murder, despair, and uh, destruction, alienation, he was like, mm, no, nah, that's not my plan. That's not, I'm not, I'm not going to settle with that. God the Father sent his son Jesus to become a king and a priest in order to die for us when we had earned death so that he could return us to who he made us to be. It's like Wesley looking at Inigo Montoya and saying, have you tried piracy? 
what I've been up to for a little while. Come on, I'll train you. Jesus is returning us to who we were made to be by inviting us to to become what he is. He is the great king. He is the high priest. He is the descendant of David, the firstborn of the firstborn of the firstborn, all the way back to Solomon. He's the great king, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Because David conquered Salem. And Melchizedek had been the king of Salem. And so when David sits down on the throne of Salem, he takes the priesthood of Melchizedek into his, uh, into his uh, line, into his kingship, and he renames Salem Jerusalem so that Jesus can be the priest and the king that then sheds his blood for us so that we can be returned to our kingship and to our priesthood. We're going to be talking uh, tomorrow about how that changes the way that we think about evangelism. And then we'll be talking uh, tomorrow, tomorrow morning, we'll be talking about evangelism. Tomorrow night, we'll be talking about how that changes the way we interact with one another as family members. But in order to do any of that, we have to understand that God created us to be kings and priests. We created us as descendants of Adam and Eve to be kings and priests. That is the narrative that frames our life. God running you down over and over and over again and saying, ah, come back over here, dork. Let me put the ring back on your finger. Let me put the priestly robe back where it's supposed to be so that you can get to work gardening this place, bringing it to its intended end. And you can get to work as a priest. We'll we'll be talking about this tomorrow. Bridging, uh, being a bridge between God and the world as well as oblating, which is the thing the priests do, which we get to talk about tomorrow. But when you ran for it. God ran faster. Your legs were too short to outrun God. The human race's legs were too short to outrun Jesus. And he is insistent that he will undo the works of the devil, as 1 John says, and return us to our original intended beginning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. Uh, We thank you that Jesus died on the cross for us. And Father, we thank you that your uh, your goodness um, is faster than our sin. That your grace is stronger than our sin. And we thank you that you are uh, a God who remembers back to the beginning. So as much as we try to forget who we are, uh, your memory is long enough that it remembers uh, our inheritance. And so Father, we pray that you would help us Um, to pull that inheritance out of the attic, dust it off, use it well for the sake of our neighbor, for the sake of your kingdom, and that you would teach us and train us uh, to be good kings and priests uh, in your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.